This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Happy birthday, Thomas Jefferson. Born on April 13, 1743, Jefferson would be 275 years old this year. Besides his political resume, Jefferson was also a studied, curious, and acquisitive gardener and plant lover. Monticello, Jefferson's historic home and garden in Charlottesville, Virginia, is an UNESCO World Heritage Site. Jefferson began designing and building the house and gardens of Monticello at just 26 years old. With not only Jefferson's birthday, but also Virginia's Historic Garden Week happening this month, today on Cultivating Place, we're joined by two members of Monticello's horticultural staff, Peggy Cornett, curator of plants, and Eleanor Gould, curator of gardens. We'll explore the legacy of Jefferson's beloved gardens in all of their complexity, depth, and scope. Peggy and Eleanor join us today from the studios of WVTF. Welcome, Peggy and Eleanor. So pleased to have you. Thank you. It's great to be having us. Let's start with an introduction to the two of you. And let's start with Peggy. Peggy, give us a little bit of an overview of your history leading up to you becoming the curator of plants and your current work there. I worked at Monticello for quite a while. I started in 1983 as assistant director to Gardens and Grounds. And um, at that time, I was... um, you know, training uh, garden guides as well as propagating plants and supervising the crews in the garden. Uh, My job changed over time, and I was hired as the director of the Thomas Jefferson Center for Historic Plants, which is a program, part of the Gardens and Grounds Department, but a program specifically focused on collecting and preserving and propagating historic plants for the public. So I was involved more as an outreach person, um, uh, you know, coordinating and and planning the the nursery operation, the plant sales operation, developing online presence for our plant sales and seed sales, and giving um, public programs, lectures and and workshops and and so forth. And that job... um, uh, was lasted uh, for about 17 years, and then uh, in 2009, my job changed to curator of, uh, of plants at Monticello, a shorter title and, uh, and kind of a change of venue. Um, I'm in a different office now, and I'm involved with um, plant record keeping, plant research, uh, garden research. Um, also, I still give lots of lectures, public programs, and I train um, staff to give um, garden tours and public programs as well. Um, so I, I do a lot of different things. And plant record keeping at Monticello must be pretty expansive. Yes, it is, uh, because Jefferson himself was a record keeper, you know, par excellence. And, and he, you know, wrote down so much. In fact, we're probably one of the best documented gardens in the world. And um, we you know, use his diaries, his letters. Uh, he wrote nearly 20,000 letters in his lifetime talking about gardening uh, in many of them. Uh, he he left us, uh, you know, directions to his overseers and his grandchildren. And so Jefferson himself left us an incredible amount of, of, of records of his gardening activities, his interest in plants, his love of gardening, um, his passion for um, sharing plants with his uh, friends uh, all around the, you know, you know, in America as well as in Europe. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I I bring that material together and um, try to to um, collect this information on specific plants and to make sure that we're growing the right plants to tell the story of Thomas Jefferson's you know lifetime of gardening um, mm-hmm. because the history of these plants uh, not only with regard to Jefferson, their relationship to Jefferson, but also just gardening in, in America during the uh, 18th and early 19th centuries is, is quite a story in itself. So 
yeah, I'm involved with a lot of um, of garden history, really. Yeah, yeah. And Eleanor, tell us a little bit about being curator of gardens and your history uh, leading up to and becoming curator of gardens there. I was a student at University of Virginia in landscape architecture, and I was lucky enough to be interning at the Office of the Architect, and part of uh, the summer program was uh, the Historic Landscape Institute, which the the lead landscape architect co-teaches with the curators and the director of Gardens and Grounds at Monticello. And I took that class, and it forever changed me. Especially, I especially remember working in the gardens at Monticello. Uh, we harvested beets, and it hmm. um, was a memory that really stuck with me for the rest of my program. Uh, I had two more years of my landscape architecture experience, and I, when I finished, I, I um, was in contact with Peter Hatch and asked if there might be a, a temporary um, summer garden position so I could get some hands-on experience. And I absolutely fell in love with the place and the history and the incredible people there that are so dedicated uh, to their work. And I've been there for eight years now. So, um, and my job has evolved over the years uh, from an assistant gardener to the fruit, flower, and vegetable gardeners to a curator, which I'm so fortunate um, to be working with Peggy, who's uh, longevity and experience is so wonderful. And, um, you know, just, I feel like it's just been an incredible experience for me. So, yeah. So, when you when you say curator of gardens, what 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 does that even mean? That is, it, it's. I think it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, it involves uh, both management of the staff, the um, the garden staff. I basically they're they're the leads in their each department. So the fruit, flower, and vegetable gardens. They're the experts, but I help them to you know be appropriate in their plantings, um, get what they need to do do their work, um, and you know try to communicate all of the other events and um, happenings at Monticello so we um, can run seamlessly. And it's also, you know, really a balance of, um, you know, documenting and preserving Jefferson's gardens while uh, meeting the expectations of the 21st century visitor. So mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. it's an interesting uh, balance there. Mm-hmm. So, And we work with and other well, departments quite a bit too, um, archaeology and research. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of an interdisciplinary approach, you know, with um, the restoration department. So, you know, Eleanor and I both uh, meet with them and, um, and you know, discuss their, their restoration projects that are going to impact the landscape. And then we have to weigh in and, and give our opinion and, and, and um, you know, help guide what they're doing as well. And I, I would say that it is such important garden history. I know that um, Monticello, as well as the UVA campus, were declared a UNESCO heritage site in, I think, 1987. They, these are remarkable sites for history. But with our gardening and environmental and social world evolving at such a rapid clip, all of this garden history is so important to our garden and social future as well, which I I know you all put to work every day. That's right. That's well put. I would love for one of you, and maybe you can split it up, but to to describe, especially for visitors who may not have been there or who may not have been there recently, describe when you say the gardens, what we're talking about, a little bit about the layout and the scope um, of what you are maintaining and um, interpreting for visitors and research right now? Well, this is, uh, it's actually really expanding, but I'll, I'll begin by uh, talking about what people experience when they first come to um, the gardens, uh, when they enter, when they get to the top of the mountain, so to speak, um, and they first approach the flower gardens, which are uh, immediately around the house. And Jefferson had um, uh, the gardens that you see today are the result of the restoration that was done by the Garden Club of, of Virginia in the 1939 to 1941. And so this uh, restoration work that the Garden Club uh, d- did was really based on Jefferson's uh, garden diary, uh, drawings of the landscape, 
but and um, a lot of research, but it, it was not based on, on landscape archaeology. So when they restored the garden, they were putting back paths and beds where it appeared to be depressions in the ground, but it was never really verified by archaeology. So when you visit the flower gardens today, you're really seeing this type of restoration that's really um, a result of early 20th century um, techniques that, you know, were similarly employed at Colonial Williamsburg, for example. But then the vegetable garden and fruit garden and beyond the flower gardens, um, uh, the, that restoration took place later, in the beginning in the 1970s. And Eleanor mentioned Peter Hatch, which is, who's the uh, former director of Gardens and Grounds. He was at Monticello for 34 years. And um, so he undertook uh, this restoration based on landscape archaeology. Um, and so the vegetable garden terrace was all excavated by the archaeologist first and the wall and the orchard before all of uh, the restoration was put back into place. And so um, when you visit the vegetable garden today, you're, you're going to see one, a thousand foot long, 80 foot wide terrace um, on the southeast slope of the mountain. And this is really pretty accurately based on where it was originally located. And then beyond that, um, we're now ex uh, beginning to really interpret the broader landscape, the plantation landscape, you might say, uh, the landscape of slavery, really, um, because we're discussing more, um, uh, you know, what really ca uh, caused, uh, helped to support Monticello uh, to make it really a, a working plantation. Um, you know, Jefferson owned about 5,000 acres in Albemarle County, and we have around 2,500 of those acres still in, uh, as part of the foundation. So this broader landscape is, um, you know, a bigger story. It's, it's you know, sometimes it's a kind of a painful story, but we're, we're mm -hmm. you know, again, talking about um, uh, what life in, in, in Jefferson's day was like, you know, with um, a plantation with people, uh, enslaved uh, uh, African Americans um, really maintaining all of the gardens. Total in the property today are about 2,500 acres, and that includes the home site and, and immediately cultivated gardens around it, as well as the larger woodland and plantation acreage. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And about how much of that is intensely cultivated? I would say maybe eight to ten acres around the house because uh, there's a lot of woodland just beyond the vegetable garden and, and flower gardens. But then there's a, there are satellite, Jefferson had satellite farms uh, where he cultivated, where, you know, he had the, the they were cultivating uh, wheat and corn, you know, originally tobacco. And these farms, um, we still own some of them. Uh, the most important one is Tufton Farm, which is in you can, you can visually see it from the vegetable garden at Monticello, and we're really trying to interpret that more as Jefferson's, one of his working farms, um, and to, you know, pr have cultivated crops on that side as well. So that's just in the very initial stages now, but this is something we're, we're beginning to explore. We own his birth site, the Shadwell, which is where he was, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, about a mile away from Monticello on the other side of the Ravana River. And uh, we own other property that Jefferson originally owned, the Montalto, of course, this beautiful high mountain that looms above Monticello. Um, we also own that. So there's a, and, th and that again is is uh, kind of an open landscape that we have to maintain, not as Jefferson's landscape, but it's just our grounds crew has to maintain that that area as well. How many people do you have on staff working on? gardens and grounds? Well, we were um, discussing this earlier. We have roughly four full-time gardeners. We have a fruit, flower, and vegetable gardener. And then there's a one full-time gardener that rotates and assists all of them. We also have summer interns, which I've been excited to help to start a summer internship that includes horticulture and landscape students. And I feel that this has been a really nice benefit for us and for the students as well. We also have quite a few volunteers who are dedicated and come on a weekly basis and other sort of part-time. And then there's roughly four or five groundskeepers. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking with Peggy Cornett, 
Curator of Plants, and Eleanor Gould, Curator of Gardens, for Monticello, the historic home, garden, and landscape of Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville, Virginia. This month marks the 275th birthday of Jefferson. Peggy and Eleanor, along with all the horticultural staff of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, are tasked with researching, interpreting, and preserving the history of the site for the present and future. The complex prism that historic preservation is and should be is pursued at Monticello through a variety of annual events, including the Historic Landscape Institute in June and the Heritage Harvest Festival in September, as well as through ongoing archaeological research. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's already the second week of April. I really hope spring has arrived for you. Many of you know that my eldest daughter is at school in Virginia, and she recently said to me on the phone, Mama, I think winter has lasted for a whole year. For most of my life, I've had close family in Charlottesville, Virginia, and so grew up visiting Monticello along with other sites of interest to the formation of the United States. But of course, the depth of history goes deeper and wider than just that lens. That's the tricky thing about history, isn't it? Understanding what lens we're looking through and trying to remember to consider what other lenses might tell this story differently. My Aunt Bettina, my mother's oldest sister, was the head gardener at Highland, the historic home of James Monroe, our fifth president. It was my simultaneously very literary and yet very practical Aunt Bettina, a lifelong organic gardener, La Leche League member, and garden club enthusiast who introduced me to the idea of historic gardening of cultural landscapes, and the various and important narratives they convey. The last time I visited Monticello was for her interment several years ago now. I think these concepts to our own garden literacy, beyond what grows here, when it blooms, what to do with it, they're intriguing. Garden and plant literacy were part of the rambling theme of the View From Here newsletter this month. If you didn't get a chance to see it, head over to cultivatingplace.com and check it out. You can always subscribe. It comes out about once a month. Speaking of history, I have to enthuse one more time about the new theme music for Cultivating Place. This new song, its sound and feel and lyrics, it's now part of the history of Cultivating Place. I liked the first theme sound for the program in its infancy, and I remain grateful to Matt Schultz for his contribution of it when we first got started. The new song, though, it feels like something we've now grown into, doesn't it? I hope you think so. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us a note, leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook, let us know. And now, back to our conversation with Peggy Cornett and Eleanor Gould, gardeners at Monticello. Wherever I go, make beauty. Make beauty. Wherever I go, This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Peggy Cornett and Eleanor Gould, both horticulturalists at Monticello, the historic home and garden of Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville, Virginia. When you say, you know, we own, what is the organization that is caring for all of this land at this point? It's called the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, and it's a nonprofit uh, historic site. And uh, we're, you know, we're not supported by the government. We're we're dependent on, you know, uh, gate receipts and and museum shop sales uh, and donations. Uh, we have a development department that helps to support our work. Uh, um, and uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's sort of an interesting element, which 
maybe not everybody knows is that these properties were repurchased in order to reconnect them to one another, that at the time of Jefferson's death, he was so in debt that the family had to, in fact, sell the, the land and auction off property. And there, there's something poignant about that and the fact that this has been very slowly and painstakingly brought back together and recreated. Yes, uh, the foundation was established in the 1920s, and um, at that time, it, it was sold. The property was sold by an individual family that owned it, the the Levy family, and um, so it was established at that time. So there was a, a good hundred years after Jefferson's death, when the land was privately owned. Um, everything had had to be auctioned away because he was a uh, hundred thousand dollars in debt at the time of his death. And um, and so, as I said earlier, the garden restoration didn't really begin until 20 years or so after the foundation was established, and they began restoring the home. And mm-hmm. over time, more and more property. It's still our our uh, our mission, really, to reacquire as much prop- Jefferson's original property that that we can that the foundation is able to uh, uh, obtain. And, um, of course, there's certain areas that are now developed as shopping centers and that sort of thing, so we'll never get that back. But um, we definitely are, we're also very involved with preserving the view shed, which is, um, you, you know, the views uh, from Monticello. As you can imagine, we're on a, a mountain, and we have spectacular views to the south, southeast of just rolling uh, Piedmont landscape um, of Virginia and, and uh, we're trying to maintain that uh, as a landscape uh, that's that's not interrupted by lots of development. And um, mm-hmm. a friend of Jefferson's once said that it was like is Jefferson's sea view. She called it the sea view as though you're looking out at the ocean, and it, it really is uh, a beautiful uh, sight uh, on the mountain. That view from the the terraced vegetable garden is is tremendously beautiful and iconic of what the that landscape of the, you know, southeast, or I'm not sure exactly what you would call that, but um, is it's a beautiful view. Yeah, yeah, it is. And then, of course, in the other direction, you see the city of Charlottesville, but then beyond that, you see the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, which are just equally spectacular. Talk a little bit about currently what you each see as the mission, the broader mission of your work um, sort of distilled down. Let's start with you, Eleanor, and being the curator of gardens. Like, what is the overriding mission of what you're doing there and what the individual gardeners are doing? Well, um, the combined mission of Monticello is education and preservation. And I, I love the fact that um, the gardeners are so dedicated to preserving uh, incredible varieties. Um, We consider ourselves a a Jefferson-era seed bank. Uh, We do uh, seed saving from the garden, and the gardeners are, you know, extremely uh, involved in this process and training um, our volunteers and interns um, to pass on this kind of knowledge. We also share this knowledge at our Heritage Harvest Festival. So that's one of the ways that we love to expand um, the understanding of heirloom plants and is uh, this annual uh, festival that we have called the Heritage Harvest Festival. This year it will be on September 22nd. And it's a celebration of Jefferson's uh, legacy in gardening and farming and his Epicurean legacy as well. Peggy, what would you say was the overriding mission of your work? Well, yes, uh, as Eleanor said, preservation and education are are, are two dual themes, our our goals, and our mission. And um, you know, in that regard, um, preservation not just of the our seed bank and the the different seeds uh, that we've collected over the years of different varieties that are some in some cases quite rare. But also um, preserving, um, like as you said, the, the iconic landscape of Jefferson. And this can be really um, difficult and, uh, for us sometimes because um, there's, we have to make a lot of concessions for the public and also um, other preservation restoration efforts at Monticello really impact our work. 
Um, we've recently had quite a lot of, of, of um, well, I wouldn't, a lot of restoration work done at Monticello that has caused us to remove certain large trees and, you know, mm. have a lot of um, uh, contractors on site who may not really understand exactly what we're doing with the landscape. So, you know, we, we've had to, to um, re- repair and replace certain areas. Uh, this is something that we just have to to, to stay on top of. Um, visitor impact can be quite, uh, as well, can be quite um, uh, damaging to the landscape. And so we have to mm-hmm. monitor that, um, monitor our trees, the health of our trees, um, uh, to keep the landscape safe <laughs> for the public, um, you know you're dealing with you know things like uh, uh, holes in the in the landscape uh, that could cause someone to trip and fall. You know there's just lots of uh, menial things that you have to be aware of as well. Um, and you know it is a landscape that's um, not quite the same as in Jefferson's day because we now we have. Um, uh, modern visitation, whereas before it was just Jefferson, his family, and and the enslaved population that 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 lived here. And how how many people how many people did live there during his time? Well, that's kind of a floating number. We would say four hundred um, enslaved um, uh, people lived here and worked on this on at Monticello, but I think. Jefferson had more um, at Poplar Forest, for example. He had a retreat home, which is about uh, an hour or so drive from from Charlottesville. It's at, near Lynchburg, Virginia. And so um, there were a lot of people, uh, but not exactly living right at Monticello. The, there were satellite farms, as I said earlier, where people mm-hmm. were living. So. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the, you know, the seed bank and the... Um varieties that you are preserving and researching and educating people about is there and I know that Jefferson himself left detailed information on what he was growing and how it was doing and the phenology of each plant or each crop how uh, how many plants are in your uh collection, the Thomas Jefferson Monticello collection at this point, and how were there other resources besides Jefferson's notes that provided information on what was there at a given time? Okay, well, um, it's hard to say how many how many varieties we have, uh, seed varieties. It's, it's well over a hundred or more, I think. Um, a lot of vegetables have come into our um, collection, but no, we use other sources besides Jefferson. Um, you know, uh, during his time, during his lifetime, he he obtained seeds, plants from uh, various places, such as uh, uh, from Philadelphia. There was a uh, plantsman by the name of Bernard McMahon who mm-hmm. wrote a book on the American Gardener's Calendar, and Jefferson was actually ordering and receiving seeds and bulbs and plants from. McMahon on a regular basis uh, during the time of his retirement when he first came, returned to Monticello in 1809. Um, and Jefferson was using McMahon's as a source. And so McMahon's book actually has a lot of, uh, actually includes an, an appendix of all the plants that were available at that time. And we use that list quite a bit to help, you know, fill out our flower gardens, for example. Uh, with plants that are period plants and that were probably available to Jefferson. Um, so um, we try to bring it as close as we can to Jefferson, but but in some cases we're growing plants that are not specifically mentioned by Jefferson. And then in the case mm-hmm. in the vegetable garden, uh, again, it's very hard to find varieties that really date back to Jefferson's time period. Um, in a vegetable garden, you're, you're dealing with a lot of annuals, plants, you know, change quite a bit over time. Uh, but we do have some important varieties like the tennis ball lettuce, um, the blue Prussian pea, uh, the brown Dutch lettuce. These are actually mentioned by name and by Jefferson in his garden book, and we're growing them today. So these are important varieties in our in our seed bank.
as I recall from the last time I was there, which is since the last big renovation, so the current gift shop was in place and the current sort of how you get up to it and, and park and then get taken to the you know actual Monticello site was all there. Um, and there's quite a bit of information in the, the shop and seeds you can buy and all of the books and things like this. Um, but talk about the bigger events that you hold throughout the year, um, specifically the the Heritage Festival in the fall. Um, and I think you're a big part of Historic Garden Week as well. Well, I'll, I'll talk about Historic Garden Week. Um, uh, because uh, we've been so involved with the Garden Club Virginia since the 1940s, um, you know, we've maintained this relationship. And uh, the Garden Week in Virginia is... is one of the oldest um, continuous garden programs in America, and and uh, they really uh, highlight and uh, historic gardens uh, across the state. But at Monticello, we have um, uh, programs. We'll have a, an evening sp- uh, speaker, an evening conversation, we call it, with a reception um, during that week, and we will have... Um, Programs. We've actually switched our programming now so that the um, uh, Garden Week uh, actually involves uh, people going around and, and doing kind of an insider's tour with the vegetable gardener and the fruit gardener. People are actually just kind of able to come and take this insider's tour, and which is um, uh, something that, that you know really involves our staff a little more. And uh, um, because a lot of people, especially if the weather's good, a lot of people are coming to the gardens. It's always in the middle of April, the third week in April, and usually the tulips are are in full display. And we have like 8,000 tulips in bloom uh, over the the course of the springtime. And um, the vegetable garden, uh, the spring garden is really... um, uh, doing well at that time, so it's it's a it's a lovely time to be at Monticello um, in, in that time period. And then at the very end of the week, um, there's an open house at the his, um, at the Center for Historic Plants, the nursery that's at Tufton Farm. And so again, we'll have a program a speaker, and uh, that's a kind of a free event where people can just come out to the garden. There'll be plant sales, of course, and. And uh, the the Center for Historic Plants has a, an entirely separate garden from what you see at Monticello, and um, it's about two miles away from Monticello. And then the Heritage Harvest Festival, it's going to be in its 12th, um, 12th annual year and this year. It's September 22nd uh, will be the date this year. And it's, as I said, a celebration of Jefferson's legacy in farming, gardening, and as well as uh, his culinary um, impact on early America. And uh, it's... My favorite event of the year, it's our largest event of the year, which is pretty exciting. It be, It's um, even larger than our 4th of July event, which is a, a big one. So we've gotten as many as um, four to 5,000 people, visitors on this day. And it's um, a really, uh, it's a wonderful celebration on the West Lawn of Monticello. Uh, we have uh, tomato tastings of over 100 varieties with Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Uh, we have demonstrations and everything from seed saving to cheese making. You know, it's just a wonderful variety of learning. And Peggy and I are both on the programming committee for the Heritage Harvest Festival, and we've loved involving, um, you know, just it's it's incredible the range of people that we've gotten from David Shields, who's saving older varieties in South Carolina, to uh, people who are like Michael Twitty, who's uh, celebrating African-American foodways, and Ronnie Lundy with uh, her incredible talks on Appalachian foodways. So we're really expanding our audiences that are um, coming by, sort of diversifying our options. And I think it's it's just continues to grow and just I, it's a fabulous event. So I hope you can come sometime. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. The importance of preserving historic seeds cannot be overstated. And the concept of seed sovereignty is powerful. If we lose the knowledge or ability to recognize and protect the vast diversity of plant life for the health of ecosystems around the world, as well as for human and wildlife food, for medicine, for utility, including beauty, Where are we? If we lose these things, we're lost. And foolish, that's where. 
This conversation with Peggy and Eleanor reminds me of the importance of historic preservation work on that seed level alone. Now is a great time of year to explore your local organic seed savers, seed growers, seed libraries and banks and exchanges. In talking about the Heritage Harvest Festival held at Monticello in September, Eleanor refers to the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange managed by the Acorn Community Farm in Virginia. This exchange is an active part of the Heritage Harvest Festival. For more information on seed saving and organic seed resources near you, make sure to visit the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange or the Organic Seed Alliance website. I'm not the best seed saver, but I love saving simple things like lettuce and basil, as well as lots of my native annuals and perennials for spreading around. The evocative common names of heritage seeds are half the fun, and the deep satisfaction of self-sufficiency and working around seed patents and the likes of Monsanto, well, these little rebellions count, in my opinion. Do you save seeds? Which kinds? I'd love thoughts. I've never brought myself to save tomato seeds, for instance. It seems intimidating and complicated. If you have thoughts or tips for me on this, send them along. I'd love to share them. Welcome back. Following it last year on the publicity that went out and the write-ups and different people who were there speaking, talking about what they were doing, it it kind of gets to my next question, which is Monticello and Thomas Jefferson are such icons in our country, and yet they are also rife with conflicted history in terms of social justice and humanitarian ideals, which I'm imagining you are trying to grapple with every single day. How do you there, how do we wrap our heads around this rather than avoid it? And how do we make sure that historic gardens of this stature are part of a proactive conversation moving forward rather than a glorification of atrocities in the past and, and present? Well, yes, it's, it's a difficult history, and it's one we're really trying to, to you know, address head on. Um, in all our interpretation at Monticello and our written um, signage to our brochures, to our guides, um, you know, discussions of of what life was like at Monticello, the you know the the realities of uh, of uh, plantation um, life is you know very can be very harsh, and um, we have tour specific tours at Monticello. Uh, slavery at Monticello is one tour. The Hemings family is a tour that really focuses just on one family that is so important at Monticello. Um, uh, even in the with the gardens, um, you know, we're trying to not just talk about Jefferson planting flowers with his grandchildren, but you know, the fact that he relied on an African American uh, gardener named Wormley Hughes, who was you know trained by a Scottish gardener. He was very skilled, and um, you know, Jefferson's gardens could not have happened without the work of these um, of these people who, you know were uh, were slaves on the mountain and um, so we're trying to you know explain this um, is you know it's it's difficult it's um, it's a hard history to, to uh, grapple with but I, I we're trying to we're not trying to um, whitewash it or or act like it was you know um, you know he was a good slave owner and that sort of thing because you know being enslaved is, is not a good condition to be in. And so, um, you know, I, this coming year is actually the 25th anniversary of a project we started uh, called Getting Word. And um, this is a remarkable um, research that's been conducted over these years to interview um, descendants of those that we know were enslaved at Monticello, descendants uh, from those who lived here. And uh, we're going to actually, um, you know, have these the, these descendants uh, return to Monticello this summer in June. It's going to be a, a very large event at Monticello to open our um, restoration of the South Wing, uh, which is uh, the uh, t- the area below the South Terrace where 
um, the, the south kitchen, um, the uh, cook's room, uh, the smokehouse, and then we're going to have three rooms uh, dedicated. Uh, one room is going to be dedicated to the Getting, Getting Word project, and, um, and, and then the other room is going to be dedicated to Sally Hemings, who's a, you know, um, a well-known uh, individual that, um, you know, people ask about a lot, the, the story, the legend of Sally Hemings. And so um, this is all going to be um, displayed and, and discussed and, um, you know, dealt with um, very, um, you know, truthfully, I think. Then, of course, um, as I mentioned earlier, the Tufton Farm uh, landscape is going to really try to show the broader farm plantation of of Monticello because the vegetable garden is is really was Jefferson's uh, garden for for the uh, for the household. It was his um, his kitchen garden basically that uh, where all all of these crops were grown to be uh, served at at his table and and. Um, uh, but there were other gardens that the the slaves themselves grew, and Jefferson actually purchased vegetables from his slaves uh, often. Um, and uh, but he had this broader landscape where field crops were grown, and we we're going to try to really explain that in a more um, active way now, rather than just talking about it in the distance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything to add to that, Eleanor? Um, you know, I think she put it very well. It is uh, slavery at Monticello. Is it's the paradox of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's. I think our honesty about it is essential, and you know, we need to always underscore the fact that um, Jefferson's dreams of Monticello could have never been realized with all without all of the enslaved people that um, that basically built and maintained all of Monticello and the the outer landscape. So. It's um, something we want to continue to emphasize, of course. Mm-hmm. And it seems like this is, again, one of the things that is being taken on in a very active way at some of your events, clearly the one coming up in June. And then at the Heritage Festival, there is a, a very active incorporation of all voices that would have been part of this, this life at this, at this plantation. That's right. I would love to have each of you um, share with me, maybe it's a a visual memory, maybe it's your favorite spot at Monticello, but something that kind of summarizes for you what is compelling and beautiful and what might capture the importance importance of this kind of historical preservation and education going forward, not just for garden buffs, perhaps, but for just greater understanding in this world? What what might that be for each of you? Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it might just be, you know, where, where, where you go there at Monticello to feel revived or to feel the fullness of what it is you're working on? I'll start out, I guess. Um, uh, I, for, I guess since, since the night, it's probably 25 years ago or, or 30 years ago, we started doing wildflower walks at Monticello. And um, I've, I've led those um, every spring. And for me... Um, that just takes me to what Jefferson loved about Monticello when he first walked on this land this, uh, across the river from where he was born at Shadwell. He he um, kept a garden diary, and, and one of his first entries in his garden book was um, his observations of wildflowers uh, growing along the Ravana River. And he talked about the bacoon, which was the bloodroot, and the bluish-colored funnel form flower in the low ground, which was the um, Virginia bluebell. And um, so when I take people on these walks and, you know, it's just, when we, there'll always be this moment where it's just kind of, um, let me see if I can get my voice back. I'm sorry. I can't. It's okay. <laughs> so I just hope we can maintain that part of Monticello that's um, kind of the essence of Jefferson as a, a young gardener and, you know, even Till the end of his days, I think he always looked at Monticello as a, a place of wonder and inspiration, a place he always wanted to return to. Um, 
Monticello was, you know, his home on the mountain and and his um, place. I think, you know, he's he himself spent a lot of time on his horseback and uh, a lot of time uh, of solitude in the woods. And, um, you know, I think that's where I really feel close to my job, to what I'm all about, is being in, in this landscape. What about you, Eleanor? I can't help but remember uh, one of the early memories that I had from Monticello when I was at the Landscape Institute. We had um, harvested, as I said, and uh, Peter Hatch and his wife had invited all of us in the program over for a meal, and it involved uh, beautifully cooked vegetables from the garden by his wife, Lou Hatch, and I just thought that was the most amazing thing, and Peggy brought uh, evening primrose from her garden, and oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we had a beautiful cherry pie from the garden by Peter's um, daughter made, and I just thought that was the most beautiful way to live, and it mm. it it made me just I wanted to get back there. I I um, and I think a lot about Jefferson's quote about uh, botany being ranked with the most valuable sciences. He you know he talks about how it's furnishing life to man and beast, uh, delicious varieties for our tables, refreshments from our orchards, the adornments of our flower borders, the shade and perfume of our groves, materials for our buildings, medicaments for our bodies. So it's just it, the richness of uh, the natural world to him, you know, and his passion for gardening is something I, I love to share with people who visit because I think a lot of people who do haven't, don't know that, that aspect of his life and they take in the thousand-foot-long vegetable garden and are just absolutely wowed. It changes them, and their whole viewpoint of Jefferson is um, is affected by their visits to Monticello and you know witnessing this uh, this landscape. So I'm very lucky to have spent my time there. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Jefferson, you know, he said he had an interest or affection in every breath that blows around me and in every bud that opens and. Um, you know, he, his love of nature was, you know, very um, focused. It was uh, almost microscopic. I mean, um, his observations, and I think, you know, I I try to to keep that with me because um, that's what appeals to me uh, so much about about nature. And there was every indication that he did actually work the land himself to some extent as well. Correct. You know, um, there's a funny quote, I guess, uh, that said that one of his overseers wrote that he would get out in the cool of the evening and, and work right hard for about a half an hour. But uh, I, he was, uh, you know, up in his 60s at that time, and I think he, but I think he really was an active person. But he was definitely involved with laying out the gardens, uh, saving seed. He he kept his own records of the seeds that he saved and. And so I think he was very much involved. He probably did get out and plant, um, you know, peas in the spring because that was one of the first things he always wrote about every spring was to get out and it's time to start planting peas, you know. And um, so, um, yes, I think, and he, he had he had plants when he was president in in his um, in his cabinet. So uh, he was mm-hmm. taking care of, of a geranium plant and roses and things like that. So. I think he was a, you know, a, a hands-on gardener. Thank you very much for being guests on the program today, Peggy and Eleanor. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. We loved it. Thank you so much. Peggy Cornett, curator of plants, and Eleanor Gould, curator of gardens, for Monticello, the historic home and garden of Thomas Jefferson, man, statesman, and gardener-farmer joined us today from the studios of WVTF in Charlottesville. Thomas Jefferson was a lot of things, human just for starters. If you're interested in learning more about his gardening impulse, I would sincerely recommend Thomas Jefferson's Garden Book, edited by Edwin Morris Betts and with an introduction by Peter J. Hatch, the former longtime director of Monticello, mentioned by Eleanor and Peggy in our conversation today. The book, published by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation in 2012, contains a large selection of Jefferson's wide-ranging garden notes, as well as other related writings from 1766 to 1824. 
In 1811, Thomas Jefferson wrote to Charles Wilson Peale, saying, No occupation is so delightful to me as the culture of the earth, and no culture comparable to that of the garden. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by California Public Broadcasting and listeners like you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. She ain't mine. She ain't yours. She is ours to adore. Our original theme music is performed and composed by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. It don't